Executive Office Committee meeting this afternoon. We are court, and just to remind members that we are being recorded and it is being broadcast live. Um, just to ma ask members to be aware of just their technology and uh, in front of microphones in case it causes any disruption. And we have today three members joining us by Starleaf. We have George Robinson, Emma Sheeran and Pat Sheehan. So they're very welcome via Starleaf. And we're just waiting on Trevor Clark arriving at some point uh, as the, the business starts. Um, we have... Uh, Oh, I'm way ahead of myself. Draft minutes then. Uh, members, the draft minutes of the meeting are, it was held on the 11th of November at page 5 of the meeting. Are members content that they are a true reflection of the proceedings? Yeah. Okay, so they've been signed and ready to pass over. Uh, there are no matters arising from that, which means that we can move straight into uh, item 4, which is the special EU programmes body, the oral evidence session. Members, on pages 14 to 61 of the meeting pack, you can find the relevant papers. And just to remind members that the committee had agreed um, to schedule an oral briefing on the role of the special EU programmes body as part of the committee's scrutiny of cross-cutting Brexit issues. So at this point, I can welcome to the meeting uh, Gina McIntyre, who's the chief executive of the programmes body, and Declan McGarrigal, who's the programme manager. Um, just to advise both of you, uh, after welcoming both of you, just to advise you that you're, we are being recorded by Hansard and that the transcript will be published on the committee webpage. It always sounds almost like a threat that the guy to say will be used against you, but it's just to yes. advise you of that there, but it doesn't have to be It always just sound a little bit threatening, but definitely not meant as such. So. You have the right to remain silent, but it won't be much of a committee meeting if you do. Uh, anyway, you're, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. And it's also good as well at times to get people in the room, uh, because we sort of miss that, because a lot of it is done through Starleaf. So um, normal procedures, maybe to let yourselves start off with a bit of a presentation, and then we can work around to members and ask for some questions at that point. So if you're content with that, we'll pass over to yourselves. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and thank you very much for the invitation to be here today to talk about the work of the Special EU Programmes Body, and in particular the Peace and Interreg Programmes. I have submitted a briefing paper, so um, without going through all of that again, it would be my intention just to give you some of the key highlights out of that in relation to the current programmes and future programmes, if that's okay. The Peace Programme is a value of £269 million, and the Interreg Programme has a value of £283 million. Both of those programmes, I'm happy to report, are overcommitted. And uh, the Peace Programme is overcommitted to £277 million and Interreg to £291 million. And that's a really um, it's a management technique that's used for these programmes to ensure that we maximise expenditure and getting the EU receipts back by the end of the programmes, because invariably projects will underspend during the lifetime. And so this will be a position that we maintain and indeed it will change, we'll be overcommit by certain amounts throughout the, the next couple of years. Our priorities are obviously to stay overcommitted and ensure full expenditures recouped. COVID has proved a problem, obviously, in relation to our projects, but we as an organisation have been working remotely since March 
We have worked on a case-by-case -case basis with each of those projects that we fund because we fund in so many sectors across the two programmes. They have a variety of different problems that occur um, or you know, different challenges that they've faced over the this past six months. So we have been able to offer flexibility in relation to the projects where we can. I have to actually commend the projects. They've been fantastic in coming up with innovative ways to deliver and carry on um, you know, looking after their beneficiaries, which is really, really important. We've been as flexible as we can be in relation to indicators. We put in an emergency <coughs> payment right from the beginning um, so that they didn't... We, obviously, we knew there'd be problems with paperwork, so we were able to um, uh, assign a, an emergency-type payment, which would be then verified later on. Some of the projects took that up. Um, and it's our duty to ensure the projects stay viable so that they can stay eligible for the funding. At this stage, we'll have to say... but. Given the uh, overcommitment in the current programmes, there wouldn't be any extra money that we can offer to projects for to dealing with COVID. But what we do instead is um, look at outputs. We look at uh, lengths of uh, the letter of offer, you know, in terms of extending them and that type of thing. So in the peace programme, we fund areas such as shared education, support for victim survivors, a lot of support for children and young people, 0 to 24 and 14 to 24. And, and actually those um, projects in particular have been, they're not only innovative, but absolutely hilarious in some of the ways they've been able to keep their beneficiaries involved um, in the work that they're doing. So it's all about confidence building and building resilience. We've just recently uh, launched the mental health project for young people, which is uh, great to see that out in the um, public as well. We obviously have a shared spaces element, so we've got a lot of capital buildings coming on stream this year, and uh, we have regional-wide projects, all of which are working successfully. The local action plans, every council has a local action plan, and they're all working very well. Quite a few of them obviously are completing. And, um, but so far, everything's going, going well there. We also have a Peace Platform project, which is a, a wonderful project. It's a repository of 25 years' worth of the Peace programmes. So it's just coming to fruition now, and we're hoping to launch it in January. And it has brought together all of the case studies from projects, lessons learned, reports, um, oversight, you know, evaluations, and all of that. So that's going to be a fantastic learning tool for other projects to learn uh, how, you know, maybe how to avoid some mistakes or indeed get ideas. Because as you would know, we get a lot of foreign visitors who come here to find out some of the excellent work the projects do. So they'll be able to do this now online with this learning platform. Our interreg programme funds in the areas of research and development, so uh, particularly in the area of health and life sciences, so it's PhD research, <coughs> also support for SMEs and in, uh, in research to bring products and services to the market. We also have sustainable transport in the Interreg programme, and I should mention the Interreg programme includes Western Scotland as well as a partner there. So we have the transport area, which uh, we have funded three greenways, and also the multimodal hub up in the waterside in Derry, London Derry there. We do a lot of cross-border healthcare. Uh, 50,000 patients will be treated uh, throughout the different projects that we're doing uh, in, in acute services, community interventions, particularly out in the rural areas where they can bring together critical mass of patients you know, to be able to deliver these. Um, we have some services for the disability and also uh, medical care and medicines. So there's a lot of really excellent work goes on there, uh, indeed in all your constituencies. The environment is also a major part of the Interreg programme and we fund in the areas of ha protecting habitats and species and also water quality. So one of our projects um, recently, unfortunately, at the weekend, there had a landslide in an area of 
that was, they were assessing it out in uh, the Derg uh, area for they were <coughs> assessing the water quality and what they could do. And it was very unfortunate to hear that for the for the project, but uh, the impact that that might have. So. Um, we have been, that's the position with the two current programmes. We also are um, a partner, or we are the Northern Ireland contact point for transnational programmes, and Declan would do a lot of work in that area, but that would be in a, a lot of areas of renewable energy and water and um, marine life. So that's been a strong part of the overall programmes, although not, not our two direct ones, but you know that has leveraged in 16 million into the region. The Peace Plus programme, then, as you're aware, is a programme that has been committed to in the withdrawal agreement, and uh, we started consultation on that programme last August. We were very fortunate in that we were able to go out and speak to all the permanent secretaries and the assistant sec generals in, in Dublin and the Irish departments. Uh, because we started at that time, we also had a series of public events, and we had over a 1,000 people attended those in the early part of this year. January, February time, and we went to every county, and as I said, we, the citizens came along and gave us their views. Some of them that uh, they didn't hold back in their criticisms, uh, so but that was fine. We got excellent uh, input from them. We also had surveys, and they, we had 320 surveys submitted, um, which again outlined cha the challenges they thought for the region and what they would like to see. The Peace Plus programme is based on the framework that the EU um, has ascribed to all programmes across Europe, uh, and we have selected the themes that we think are most um, beneficial for this region. That's based on a socio-economic study that was carried out in Northern Ireland and the border region of Ireland by the economists here in the Department of Finance and the Department of Public Expenditure Reform in Dublin as well. They work jointly on that. That will obviously be updated for the impact of COVID. The uh, ministers have given us great support in the projects. That, that's Minister Murphy in the Department of Finance and <coughs> Minister McGrath in the Department of Public Expenditure Reform in Dublin, who are our sponsor departments. And they have given us a clear vision of what they would like to see in the programme, which is very much about community um, interventions, uh, rural uh, interventions in those areas most impacted, and also to ensure we leave a lasting legacy. So we have looked at all of the government um, priorities here in Northern Ireland and in the border counties of Ireland. We've taken on board all the information we have. We also have to take on board the Green Deal, which is a climate um, agenda from the Commission. We're also looking at the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the impact that they would have in the programme. And I have to say, luckily for us, everything aligns very, very well. And we have developed six themes um, from that. We also then um, are looking very much, as I said, about ensuring that our communities are, we're working with communities and for communities in this future programme. No, I'm not sure if you want me to go through the six themes uh, or give you an overview of the six themes for the oh, Peace Plus programme. Is yeah, that okay? Sort of a light, light overview. Just a high level overview, yeah. So the first theme is about building peaceful and thriving communities, and it's very much focused on the type of activity I've mentioned already that we're fun funding in the Peace Programme, although obviously it's been brought up to date and it's been changed uh, depending on what we've heard from the communities. So there will be local action plans in all councils, but we're going to make sure that these are co-designed with communities and really address local needs um, within the communities. And we want to look at areas such as regeneration and transformation. We want to look at building positive relations and also um, celebrating identity, diversity and culture within that. 
Uh, we're also looking at empowering communities, and we have put in place there a small grant scheme, which will be for smaller projects that maybe wouldn't be going through the council schemes, but that should be um, on a much less administratively uh, burdensome type uh, application form, and uh, but the, because they're smaller. And they're, again, going to look at building good relations and peace building. We're looking at also in that area the um, institutional capacity building, and that will be at all levels of the community from political level right down to the local level and through all the statutory agencies. And an interesting aspect that we're hoping to bring into this programme is justice interventions in the community uh, to help build peace by establishing relationships and understanding there. Building positive relations will be regional-wide uh, projects that are looking at, uh, again, celebrating identity, celebrating diversity, and, and looking to um, build on relationships and understanding between communities, and they're a very successful part of the current programme. We will also look at re-imaging communities in the shared spaces and services element, and we want to uh, particularly consider some of the impacts of COVID in the likes of um, you know, community areas, villages, towns, and some of the retail streets that will maybe be left derelict, with a, you know a, a real emphasis on the new shared spaces as being uh, re you know um, re-establishment of older buildings and not all brand new. We want to see regeneration in that area. The second theme is about delivering economic regeneration and transformation. Again, support for SMEs. We're looking at skills development. We're looking at research and innovation there, uh, a regional skills programme. We're also looking at smart cities, towns and villages. The third investment area is in empowering and investing our young people. So learning together educational programme, very much like the shared education programme. There'll be a Peace Plus Youth programme, which is about the confidence built and resilience and <coughs> taking them forward to vocational training skills and youth mental health programme as well. The fourth area, healthy and inclusive communities. As I mentioned, the Interreg programme funds on a cross-border basis the, uh, a lot of health uh, interventions, medical health interventions. So we will carry on doing that work because that's been extremely successful. But also we want to look at community well-being, health and well-being within communities and getting the communities involved in what they can do in services because there's a lot of uh, work that communities can do to enhance the medical services for their areas. There'll be support for victims and survivors in that theme and also rural development and regeneration because you know there are um, a lot of areas of isolation and um, for rural development we really want to bring that on. Fifth area, supporting a sustainable future. So that's, again, the biodiversity, the recovery and resilience, marine and coastal management, water quality, and sustainable transport in that theme as well. But once again, we're able to bring communities in there to see um, how communities can look at making their own local areas more sustainable for the future. And the last theme is theme six. It's a mandatory theme within the programme, uh, and uh, through all programmes, uh, interact programmes in Europe. And it's about building and embedding part partnerships and collaboration. So in that theme, it looks particularly at the legal and administrative challenges of a border and what can be done to address those. So it could be the likes of skills recognition on both sides of the border, that type of thing. And it's an area that I would expect that the administrations will work together on uh, in addressing some challenges. And again, we're looking at a small project theme in there, which is about maintaining and forging relationships for communities going forward um, over the next few years. That's a summary. <laughs> and that's just a summary. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gina, thank you very much indeed for that. Um, I, I was trying to think, as you were talking, of a way maybe to, to, to introduce this next ses session of the questions. And 
I've kind of written down, you, you said the silent deliverers in Northern Ireland. Not, not everybody is yeah. aware yeah. of the work that you do, but yet the work that you do and the funding that you provide probably touches just about everybody's life. And as, you, as you've detailed there, the level and the scale of the programmes that users are actually involved in, be it people going out for a walk on a beach mm. and there'll be some form of environmental programme that has been funded and delivers there, right through to maybe a, a refurbished building in the town centre, mm -hmm. through to maybe some groups that people are part of, to the young people participating in programmes, right across the whole spectrum. People are, are, just about everybody is probably engaging in some form. And I would say, um, that there's probably many as a minister uh, in the executive that would love to have the, the, the funding that you have to be able to yeah. deliver out for yeah. programmes because there's great scope that's there. Um, so well done to everybody in the work that you are doing and, and the impact that you are having and especially in the, the dual year that we're in of having the COVID impact but then also uh, dealing with the uncertainty that there is going forward in terms of Brexit and, and how that might uh, implicate things and I suppose that's something that I would maybe like to start off with and mm -hmm. um, just to get an understanding from yourselves that obviously you've talked about literally hundreds of millions of pounds that has been delivered um, into everyday life uh, here in, in Northern Ireland and just saying Maybe if you could give us an update of where you see things going forward. Now, we did receive yesterday um, an update uh, on the North-South Ministerial Council meeting. Um, and I know that there has been a guarantee that the rest of this programme cycle uh, will actually be funded and that money is there. But I get a sense that there is uncertainty at the other end of that as opposed to a guarantee uh, as what will happen. So can you give me maybe your understanding of what might take place as a result of Brexit? Yeah. The, the current programmes, you're right, there is a commitment that they will be um, seen right through to the end. And we would work with our projects very carefully to make sure that any implications from Brexit, uh, you know, what, the, what those implications might be on the projects. As yet, as you would know, it's quite unknown what the implications might be. And we would be hopeful that a lot of what may come to pass won't happen in the next year or two. So those projects that are completing out will be able to complete out in the same manner. But we will keep on top of that as we, um, you know, as the situation unfolds next year and the year after. The, there is also a commitment in the withdrawal agreement for this Peace Plus programme, and the EU has put down uh, they had 60 million in addition to Ireland's contribution of ERDF funding. That's the fund that comes directly from the Commission. Uh, they had that, and also Ireland would put forward 60 million, and then the UK had committed to 300 million. Uh, now all of that then gets matched by government uh, interventions as well, you know, from each of the departments. So we have worked with each of the departments, and and again, I would like to pay homage to the work that the officials have done in all of those departments because they've worked fantastically with us for the last year, and they work jointly with their counterparts in Ireland, and they've put forward joint proposals for the priorities that they want. So they've been deeply involved in the development of the programme, but they will all put forward their match funding. Uh, elements to um, add to the programme and so currently the programme sits at about 650 million and that it has been committed to. Now what has happened in the last six months probably the EU has added a further 60 million on top of the 60 that they had already guaranteed and the um, Irish government have added a further 27. So that means that if the UK matched it in the proportions that you would currently expect, <coughs> we would see a much larger programme. 
but that's all worked out between the UK and the EU in terms of the negotiations, I would expect. So uh, we're working on the basis we have a firm commitment for that £650 million programme for Peace Plus. Okay, and I think that's maybe uh, that should be something that, that we should keep an eye on with you to make sure that that commitment is, is, is honoured or, or is pursued um, insofar as, you know, if we can maximise our influence to try and ensure that mm -hmm. that money is matched and drawn down because, um, I mean, again, just as I say, reiterating how you just cut it right across all of society. I wanted to say as well, I really welcome hearing you talking about youth mental health as, a, as an area. It's obviously, as, as it uh, you know, increasingly becoming an issue, it's great to see that user funding as a priority projects that will tackle that. And I like that flexibility that you have, that if there are emerging needs, yeah. that you're able to, to um, fund programmes that are actually able to target those needs. Um, because again, there is almost a flexibility there that sometimes there isn't within departments. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. really good and reassuring to know that you are there um, to be able to deliver them. My final question then really is just, you, you mentioned um, about the sort of co-design process. Do you embed that into the groups that apply to you? Or is that something that you would do, just co-designing at your level? Or is it something that you can try and push out right across? We'll be pushing it out to the local councils because we'll be at, it's very much in line with the community planning as it is. Um, but we'll be asking them to co-design the peace action plans with because they get an allocation of funds um, directly. They don't have to bid competitively for them. So we'll be able to tell them, you know, that they can go and start work developing with the the local communities what they need, and that co-design work will happen. Now, what we intend to do is provide support for that next year. To get that up and running, um, and that may be that we provide uh, some individuals to work with the councils to actually enable them to do that work, because obviously I know with COVID um, everybody's very restricted in what they can do. So we are going to uh, provide some support for that to embed that process in the, the planning. Okay, yeah. thank you. Look, I'm going to pass to the vice chair, deputy chair. Yeah, thanks, um, chair. Gina, thank you for. That. I mean, it's, it's it's fascinating. It's really interesting. Um, can I just ask just one very brief question and then and then something else? Uh, on the piece four, you talk about shared education and, and, and how you're supporting shared education. Do you do much with the integrated sector? Do you no, we don't directly in this current programme. We don't. Um, we we fund the shared education, which is about uh, two schools coming together and yeah, you know yeah, the signature yeah. type projects. But the integrated education sector can apply in there, and there were other areas that they could have applied. I do actually, I do talk to the integrated education, yeah. and and quite recently did. There will be more um, more explicit references to the integrated education in the Peace Plus programme. So in that um, learning together educational programme, it's actually specifically referenced as well. The integrated education can be involved there. All right, well, thanks to you. The, the other one is, and I, and I, I mean, this is this is interesting to, to um, well, to me to a degree at the minute. On, on the Peace Plus, uh, you talk about building peaceful and thriving uh, communities and building positive relationships, and I, and I think there was a, an article out, it might have been the last couple of days, which said that in um, due to <clears throat> over this COVID pandemic, in in some areas where paramilitaries have control, they're suffering more from 
what, what's happening in regards to, to COVID. And, and it, it made me wonder, how much of a link do you have into the likes of the executive action plans um, or indeed into the Department for Justice, for example, the, the action plan on paramilitarism, criminality and organised crime, which is in a particular community, um, and the paramilitaries task force, which is the, 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 the hard force piece to, to, to that mm-hmm. um, and use it then delivering stuff into to communities. Mm-hmm. How do you de-conflict what you're putting into communities to what mm-hmm. the action plan is trying to achieve or what mm-hmm. the police are trying to do with, with, their, with their task force? Well, we, we make sure we don't do the same, and we do that with, by working with the officials closely. So, for the executive office, we'll work very closely with them. And and when we're even when we're designing the programme and when we're putting out the calls to make sure that it's in line with their policy, but is not overlapping on their other activity. Or indeed, uh, we, what we try to do is we're trying to be complementary to the activity that they're doing. So we maybe wouldn't go in on the hard side of some of those schemes. We would go in maybe on the softer side. Yeah. Um, and working in relationships building, but we would always make sure that each of the um, relevant departments are involved in the design of those calls and to make sure that the projects that we fund are not um, overlapping on theirs. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's good, and I, and I fully get that you should be the soft power piece, and I, I, I get that. That's not the, that, you know, I never thought anything other than that. Um, I guess it's it, when you look at the, if you look at the action plan and they talk about communities and tradition in, in transition and they have mm-hmm. eight output areas in regards to that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just, you know, just getting a sense that you are fully built into what they're, they're doing and you're complementary and not yeah. doing something that's completely Absolutely. different to that. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, we would be, yeah. Okay, th- no, thank you. Want to say that, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it goes back to the point that Jean has already made. I mean, we've had extensive engagement uh, this year with all government departments on a north-south basis, you know, and I, I think that process is really standing us in good stead, I suppose, in terms of where we've arrived now, in terms of the, the development of the six teams and the various mm-hmm. investment areas. So, um, you know, it's a process that's ongoing, it's intensive, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the moment, there's a review process in terms of the investment areas and thematic papers that we have supplied to them, uh, mm-hmm. the departments. So, so it's an extensive and it's, it's an ongoing process, you know, in terms of ensuring that it is a complementary, um, you know, in terms of what we're proposing uh, as part of this. And, and we also had um, 80 officials, over 80 officials, attended together jointly from all the government departments in Northern Ireland that we are involved with, which actually was all the government departments, yeah. um, back in November. Uh, last year, this time last year, all came together in a room together when we were talking about the programme and the uh, and finding areas of complementarity <coughs> between, say, the education side and the Department of Economy. Um, and there was a lot of overlap and a lot of really, really useful and fruitful discussion came out of that. I mean, that's, that's really useful. Can I ask just another quick question? I don't, this, I don't want this to be a controversial question, but just a quick question. I mean, you are all about building, bringing communities together and building peace and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. Have you had much kickback or applications for funding from anybody in regards to the Northern Ireland centenary? Or have you stayed away from that hot potato? Uh, no, we, we haven't because uh, probably because we have actually funded our those plans have, are in place already. Yes. So you know that would be coming up in the next year so that wouldn't be part of the current programme and it probably would be too it would be before the, the next programme really starts. Yeah. So we wouldn't be involved in that. But um the the councils maybe in some of their work might be doing some of yeah. that. Uh, and they could be using the action plan. You know, they've got a lot of very micro uh, work going on. So they they could be using some of the peace funds. But in terms of the larger projects, no we haven't been involved. That's okay. I've got a side look from you, Chris, what was that about? 
Hot pot for you. Well, that's for some. You know what I meant. Stop it. There's no better way to get your question heard than starting it with, I don't right. mean this to be controversial. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to pass over now to Martina. I wouldn't think of being controversial. <laughs> you, you, you'll probably, for your end of the table, be glad to know the Orange Order did receive 3.6 million of European funding uh, from, from the SEUPB. So um, it, is, uh, it is an organisation that um, I know that in Europe is talked about widely, uh, very fondly, because of the dedication that has been there to the peace funding. you're not talking about Jordan there. Oh, definitely <laughs> not. I would not say that. <laughs> it would definitely be the SEPB. Um, and, uh, and as an organisation, um, it is recognised uh, across the EU for, for what we have achieved thus far. I'm a little bit concerned, Chair, and I don't know if you're picking up any of this from the organisations who have for years secured European Social Fund, um, European Regional Development Funding, and for many of them I've heard them say, well, thankfully we still have peace, and they feel that maybe peace for is an avenue for them, and I can imagine you are going to be overwhelmed with applications. So, how comprehensive is the consultation process? I'm glad to hear, like the chair, that you've said it's co-design. Yeah. Because there can be white communities without communities, so mm -hmm. it should always be co-design. And you're saying it's a statutory consultation, but um, is there clarity there about what the six themes will be, so that it's not seen as uh, a fund that's going to, because you will not be able to fill the gap of the point yeah. billion of European funding that's going to be lost? Yeah, I think it is clear, Martina, um, because the departments of economy who would have been responsible for both of those, you know, the, the side of the programme and also the ESF, have been working with us in the development of these themes. And I, I think there is a recognition from people who've been involved in ESF programmes that the peace programme is different because we do uh, base it on, you know, the objectives of building positive relations and peace building. So the, the types of training, we, but we are going to have training projects within the um, Peace Plus programme because you can do both. And it'll be about how projects can, can show that they can do the relationship building along with the skills development, taking the opportunities, or indeed doing it on a cross-border basis with agencies in Northern Ireland and agencies in the border counties uh, working together maybe on some of the training skills. So, so we have addressed that. We, we're very wary of it because a lot of people have said that. You know, oh, well, sure, we'll just go to the peace programme. Um, but we've, we're trying to modify it in such a way that it's... I mean, we obviously, as a peace programme, we have to deliver the objectives of peace building. But we can also deliver on investment and, you know, because obviously with peace goes prosperity. So we're taking the opportunities that we can to bring those areas into the programme. Is there anything Declan well, I suppose just in terms of the consultation and how extensive it's been. I mean, as Jane has already outlined, we had a very extensive consultation process with communities and with our key stakeholders at the start of this year. Um, you will have probably seen the, the kind of summary document as well, which was, a, again, an extensive piece of work um, from our point of view. All of that's fed in, in addition to 
the engagement we're having with the departments on a north-south basis, as well as the socio-economic uh, profile uh, and other kind of key research. All of that's fed into the development of these themes, and we will obviously then be proceeding to uh, a public consultation as well. So we'll be going back out right. with this information in terms of the themes and the detail behind it uh, to take people's views again uh, in the next couple of months. I ask now just one question about the multimodal <coughs> hub in Derry that you talked about, obviously mm -hmm. expressing interest as a, an MLA from the city, and it was indirect funding, twenty-seven mm -hmm. million. Um, and what we don't want is a white elephant because mm -hmm. the revenue is being sought. It needs to to take that forward. But given that was interreg funding, and my understanding that peace and interreg now is amalgamating. And yeah, that's right. So how is the amalgamation from interreg and peace? How are you managing that? Uh, Organising. Um, has there been, for instance, uh, obviously you collaborate anyway. But with the kind of skill sets that you would need for both programs, is there any ensuring that those skill sets are still maintained and there's no loss of personnel and because of the scale of the work that's going to be done across these six programs, people mm -hmm. need to understand about that amalgamation and, and yeah. my engagement with the community that's out there as much. Um, I don't think people are as aware that these two standalone individual programmes will be amalgamated into one, and there's obviously consequences for that. Yeah, well, the two programmes, we actually think it's a really good thing that the two programmes are being amalgamated, because uh, the Peace programme was built on peace building and relationships. The interreg was very much on the economic focus, the territorial development um, aspect, and it was cross-border. Bringing the two together then means that you there were sometimes there was projects that didn't quite meet the criteria for peace, but didn't quite meet it for interreg either, and you could see that it, this project was you know w would be beneficial to both, but didn't just didn't make it into either program. So by bringing them together, it's allowed us to bring to bring communities into being involved in particularly the area, say, of sustainable futures. So that's about climate change, and we're, we're going to do that on the basis of when the communities are involved, it'll be the peace-building aspect, the relationship-building. But on the larger projects, like the lack of a sustainable transport, that will be maintained, again, the integrity of that through the Interreg programme, because it'll be cross-border. Because at the end of the day, you know, we would say that the two complement each other very well, because the Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement, is all about establishing links north, south, east, west, that's what we've been developed under, and that's what this programme will be able to carry on doing, bringing the two together. Internally, we've managed the two programmes, um, and so now you know, bringing them together, we might end up with a larger programme. Yes, we might need some additional help with that and some additional experts. We're also looking at what we can do to help communities and applicants. So we're looking at simplification of the administrative processes. We're looking at bringing in um, pre-development support, uh, maybe running more workshops and trying to help projects because you know what we're trying to do is develop a quality program with quality projects. It's not in our interest to have a project that you know needs help. So we're going to try and and put in that support to to help them understand this a bit a bit more. But I think the smaller projects um, funds both in theme one and theme six will allow the communities to do either cross community or cross border in either of those themes and so it should be a little bit clearer and just a little point in relation to the sort of the ESF side again 
What we're also trying to engender throughout every one of these themes is the area of social innovation and community innovation. So trying to um, encourage communities to actually um, become, you know, deal with some of their social challenges and sort of think big and think differently, whether it's about services, working with statutory agencies or the civil service. And in fact, a, a call we had in the current peace programme just closed yesterday or the day before. Um, and that was uh, to sort of, it's almost the pre-development to this programme because it's about building capacity within communities for social innovation. So that's the whole area of social entrepreneurship, social economy um, and uh, the social enterprises and all of that support for those areas as well. Yeah, I think there's a process in place in the SEUPB that could be shared uh, across <coughs> departments because when I was listening you talk about how you overcommit and yet we are faced with project after project, you know, infrastructure projects that um, they certainly, in terms of not overcommit, they undercommit, and then we end up, you know, there's millions needed uh, as this project is coming to a close, or there's a threat of this project not going to be fulfilled, and yet you've been running programme after programme, overcommitting, always overshooting, and then coming in uh, under, the, uh, under the budget. So there's probably uh, an experience and an expertise in your field that certainly can be shared. With, hmm. uh, with some of our officials in the department. Is that, is that done similarly to the sort of airplane overbooking seats that, if you, you know, that maybe sort of 5% yeah. of projects will yeah. apply yeah, and not make it yes. and therefore is it that? It, it is, but, but I have to say the government departments take the risk of the overcommitment while we're overcommitted, you know, so because we work with all the government departments in all the different areas and uh, so we would have an agreement from the Department of Finance North and South to overcommit the programme, say up to 105% because our, you know, it's our experience shows that the programme will always underspend by about 5 five to 8%. So, I mean, th what we're trying to do is make sure that Northern Ireland PLC and the Irish government get back 100% of this fund. So that's why we, can, we bring it then down. But if we ended up a little bit over then and spend over, and, you know, the government departments would actually, they do pick up the risk for us in that regard. Okay, Trevor. Yeah, thanks, Chair, and thanks for your presentation, Jane. I, th I think the work that you do is fantastic. You know? Thank you. <laughs> it really brings something to the party. It has over a number of years now, and uh, I hope it can be continued on as successful a basis as it has been so far. Um, having said that, while you were speaking, I took about half a dozen notes here, and while the first three questioners were speaking, I crossed them all out. <laughs> because they covered it. Uh, so I don't really have a whole lot to ask you. You, you mentioned the small grants scheme. How, how small or how big are we talking about? Well, we're doing a little bit of work at the minute. Actually, we're just completing it all. Um, we've been out doing a bit of research to see the types of projects that we um, might fund that would be wanted in the communities. So we, we're talking about probably under 100,000. And we could have a very small grants of, you know, in certain areas for a particular range of activity that could be, say, five to 10,000. You yeah. could have another range of activity. And that's the work that we're completing on at the minute that could be, you know, the 30 to 50,000 type range yeah. or, or, you know, and then up to 100,000. But but there's um, there is options within the European regulations to do what are called simplified cost options, so that it would it reduces a lot of the bureaucracy in terms of verification of it. It, it becomes almost like a service that if you agree the outputs and the budgets with the, the project and they can deliver and they come back and show you it's delivered, you can literally hand them a check. 
You don't have to go through all the, you know, the elaborate verification, which is a, a, a big help for smaller projects. And that's why we were very, very keen to bring that in. Yeah, well, that, that aspect of it would be a godsend because so, yeah. all, all the small grant schemes there ever has been, the, the, the difficulty in filling up the forms and trying to yeah. fulfil all the criteria yeah. has been the problem. And a lot of uh, small applicants, I think, have just given up yeah. at some stage. And that, that's a pity because their mm -hmm. schemes could be valid. Um, okay, well, the, the, as regards to Peace Plus going forward, uh, is, is the funding for Peace um, Plus <coughs> from 2021 to 2027 secure? Yes. I have a there's a commitment on the table, and therefore it's secure until I'm told yeah. otherwise. And if, there, yeah. if, they, if the British government and Europe really fall out, uh, as appears possible, uh, would, that, would that affect it, or is it... Um, is it not conditional on a, a deal? As I said, there's a commitment on the table. And until yeah. it's taken off the table, it's there. There's a commitment there. And the, to be fair, the, Euro, the um, UK government last January, uh, when they announced it, they did actually say, regardless, deal or no deal, this commitment was there. Up to 2027. I thought they talked about up to the, the existing schemes up to 2022. No, this was, this was for the future, this Peace Plus programme. So they, they have given the commitment, but you know the, the money will be put into the programme, and uh, yeah. that's that's the commitment that's been given. That's another another promise we have. Yes, is the camera in size? Uh, it's a bit like fisheries. Thanks for that. That's great. Thank you. Okay, Christopher. I think what you meant to say there, Trevor, was that if anyone's going to break it, it'll not be the UK government. Anyway, um, could I ask? Um, I said in terms of the projects that you you fund, what, what percentage of the budget generally goes on technical assistance? Six percent. That's, a, that's, that's a excellent, because I, I didn't a previous life work for an MEP, and at one point it was 12 percent, so if it's oh, six percent, that's six percent, yeah. That's a very I, I think good. maybe back at piece one, you know, 20 odd years ago, I think it might have been nine percent or something, but it's it's six percent. Okay. Um, obviously, we are moving to a uh, post-Brexit era. One of the you are the special European Union programmes body, but mm. obviously one of the areas of potential work for you, I think, is in securing arrangements and, and, and investment, effectively, from the European Investment Bank for projects. I'm just wondering, has that been scoped out? And if you could talk to that even a wee bit? Yeah, no, that hasn't been at all. Um, we're st our statutory remit is delivery of these programmes. Okay. So that hasn't been discussed, uh, and I'm sure maybe if that would be between... Going forward? Going forward, that could be for the Departments of Finance to discuss that and, and look at that, possibly. So yes, like a special European programmes body rather than European Union programmes body? I don't know. Because as a periphery region yeah, of the yeah, of, you, yeah. of the European Union, I think that means we can access yes, that's right, money yeah. from that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, just in terms of the figures you gave, um, sixty million committed from Europe, mm -hmm. twenty-eight million was it from ROI? Uh, no, that's a, that's the additional money. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the additional yes, money. Yes, yes. yes. So that would be um, or that would be a total of one hundred and twenty and eighty-seven. So the UK proportion of that should be. Remember, you said it hadn't been committed yet. Well, I was wondering. They, well, the uh, the current the current commitment is the the sixty from the EU, the sixty from Ireland, and the three hundred million from the UK, and then that's matched by all the government departments add on okay. their element. But if but the additional money on the table is one hundred and twenty from the EU and eighty seven from the Irish government, and 
I don't know. Uh, that's the bit but that's the under discussion. the figure would be. That's for the bit that's under discussion. I think between the UK and the EU. Okay. Um, one of the areas that I think is important. I think Martina touched upon it. One of the not criticisms, but one of the issues that I have had with a lot of government projects is I think for people something that they can see with their own eyes, physically see, bricks and mortar, capital investment is something that um, shows them the benefit of organisations like SEUPB where revenue, I think, less so. And I'm just wondering what you envisage the relative balance being in terms of investment in capital as opposed to investment in revenue um, going forward in the next stage? Um, well, we, we don't really know what the balance will be because we, we've written the programme in such a way to keep it quite flexible. Yeah. Obviously, to deal with the and as flexible as you can, and that because we have to show the European Commission and and indeed the Northern Ireland Executive and the Irish Government that this is based on an evidence of need and and the yes. data that we've gathered, and it's in line with the priorities for government. But we've written it in such a way to be flexible to deal with the aftermath and the socio-economic problems that will result because of COVID and indeed also because of Brexit. So that the, we'll wait to see what comes forward in the project schemes. You know. Um, as as it unfurls, what might be required from the Ireland, Northern Ireland Protocol, because I believe that there is opportunities there um, to protect what we have and indeed build on those and, and to address some of the challenges. And, and those projects will come forward in this. And it could be the case in, in some of these areas that we wouldn't envisage, you know, say in the smart towns, cities and villages, mm. we don't know yet how much of that will be capital. Yes. Because we're going to do a bit of research next year as well, because obviously these areas are so wide-ranging. Um, what we don't want is just everybody to come in, say, looking for a smart town or yeah. village. Yeah. So we're going to do some work in three specific areas. One is those areas most badly affected by COVID, such as tourism. Um, the other one is in the whole area of the social economy. And the third one is rural uh, smart towns, um, cities and villages. So that we hopefully by the end of next year will have a, a sort of a pathway to show what investments would make the biggest impact yes. in the region, okay. in Northern Ireland and the six border counties. And so it'll come out of that probably what element of this will be capital. But you can be sure that the um, the shared spaces will be capital and the transport projects will be capital and there'll be capital elements within all the environmental protection. Yeah. Uh, less so probably in the, the healthcare side, but there could also be some capital in there because, as I said, we want to bring communities in there and particularly we want to look at uh, well-being of communities and that might be we, we could be looking at potentially Community hubs and stuff yeah, like that or like, yeah. you know, drugs or rehabilitation centres or something that's yes. done on a cross-border, cross-community basis that type of thing, so we just don't know yet um, the exact proportion sorry Christopher, we don't you know, that's okay um, the, just the final question then um, you know yourself um, Martina made reference to it, my, my favourite EU project, the House of Orange um, single identity work is important because for communities to reach out to each other they have to be confident in themselves mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm just wondering in terms of empowering communities mm -hmm. to reach out uh, I appreciate and understand obviously your focus it's not going to be a majority of uh, yeah. where you're driving towards but what elements do you see in, in terms of single identity work in the projects going forward? 
I totally agree with you. It's very important, and uh, it's in that empowering communities area where there could be some. Um, there is provision for single identity work that will lead on to cross community work. Yes. So it'll almost be like a little bit of a, like pilot work, and indeed, so in that area, and also potentially in theme six yes. in relation to um, challenges and you know maintaining and forging relationships, we we do see and building positive relationships. We do see a necessity for some single identity work, but obviously only if it's yeah. leading on to, to cross-community cross work. work. Um, but I totally agree it is important, and I think there's a lot of people now who, who would like to do some work, and they just don't maybe know how to go about it. Yes. So again, that's another piece of work we want to do next year, with maybe we're, we're just looking at how best to deliver that, to do some of that capacity building and single identity work. I think that, that is particularly an issue in the community that I come from. Yes. In terms of the community capacity yes. and skills and um, all of that infrastructure that is so important to yes. strengthen people to then reach out. So, and so um, I'm glad to hear that. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Thank you. And a good heart way back to youth work days from the 80s and 90s about doing that, that pre, yes. uh, where, you know, that single identity work was always a critical building block in moving forward. You want to come just on the back of something? Uh, it's, well, it's a very quick one, Chair. Thanks again. Um, you, you mentioned about regeneration town centres and a particular emphasis on trying to preserve rather than uh, demolish. Uh, do, do, do you do any work alongside the Heritage Lottery Fund? No, we don't actually. Up to now, we haven't really done much with the Heritage yeah. Lottery. Uh, one a little two, bit. Just, yeah, just a one a or little two, bit not in the much. past. Um, probably not so much not in this much. programme period. Yeah, but maybe that'll be something going forward. That could be, because yeah. it's, it's one of the quirks of this country that there are certain organisations that won't actually take money from the Lottery Fund. Yes, I know that. Yeah. Churches, but some churches will and some won't. That's right. Yeah. So maybe they would quite happily take yours. Yes, maybe or they would. Or even yeah. lottery money that was channeled through yours. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and within that area of the I mentioned earlier on the, the empowering communities and and the institutional capacity built, and that includes you know politicians, churches, political groups, community groups. But it, we we really do believe that that some there is single identity work that's required here. Okay. Thank you. It was amiss of me not to mention as well that we have members that are actually oh, on yes, Starleaf that are on at the side and so mm -hmm. therefore uh, it's not that we're depleting in numbers and we've um, Trevor here so sometimes they don't get around. Is there anything I can bring no, you on? Right. I'll just check on, on Starleaf just in the order that I saw people joining. So Pat, is there anything that you would like to ask? No, I'm okay. Joe, yeah, sure, thank you. Okay, uh, and then I saw George next then. George, is there anything that you want to ask? Going on lip reading, and I think he said, No, he's okay. I think he went from that. Okay, um, Emma, is there anything that you wanted to check out? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, go on ahead, yes. No, I was just following on from the question that. Trevor had asked there around the guarantee for Peace Plus, because obviously we've been working on the basis that Peace Plus would be getting another run again in the 2021 to 27, I think it is. That was, as I understand it, that was a commitment um, in terms of the, was it the cohesion policy it was called, and it was accounted for within the withdrawal agreement. But we don't have... I suppose you answered that very carefully there. We don't actually have concrete confirmation that that's, that can still be reneged on, can't it? 
Um, well, as I said, it's a commitment we have at the minute. So I and, and the Department of Finance are working closely with the Northern Ireland office in relation to um, confirming when that will be actually confirmed or indeed to the, the quantum that will be confirmed. No, I, I know and I appreciate, I suppose, from your perspective and this, uh, I'm, I'm not... Um, trying to challenge you guys. I know you are, are working on the programme and can only deal with the information that is in front of you. I just I suppose it's probably challenging from your perspective that you're trying to account for a programme that we don't actually have cast iron guarantees on. And, you know, at any point the rug could be pulled under us um, on, on that. I know in our pack as well, we have correspondence from the finance minister we still don't have any update on the shared prosperity funding from the the british government in terms of what the replacement will be to the structural funding that we've seen from the eu up until this point that's right that's not something we deal with but i know department of finance are dealing with that i think yeah yeah it's just i suppose it's worth highlighting i you know all of this is up in the air and it can seem quite abstract when we're talking about it in committee in terms of, you know, there's all these different acronyms and all these different names of funding programmes. But when you're in your community, I know I sit on the on the RDP board in Mid-Ulster and the number of local community groups that have benefited from this funding, be it, you know, GAA clubs, Orange Halls, uh, you've got different community association groups, play schools, the list goes on and on. Um, so it will have real life implications on the ground. And I know in the pack, some of the, the conversations that you touched on around like the border infrastructure and fears that, that people have around that. And obviously at one time, this funding was seen as sort of the, the sweetener to, you know, some of the, the infrastructure that was there and to try and ease division. And it, I suppose it's just a very real fear that we're going backwards. But thank you very much for the presentation and for the information you, you provided there. Okay, and I think Emma actually has nicely brought us around. Uh, thank you in a full circle there, because it goes right back to that bit at the beginning that we were saying that it absolutely cuts across every facet of community life mm -hmm. um, within Northern Ireland and, and that the funding is so important. And maybe just to, to of note rather than anything else to, for a comment, um, we met the last two weeks with the 11 councils on the issue of mm -hmm. Brexit. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose if there was a recurring theme from each one of those councils, it was that they really fear for the future of those um, projects that they deliver in association yeah. with yourselves. Um, and I suppose it would be fair to say that we got that palpable sense of fear that there is in the local government sector, that if they were to simply lose the ability to deliver those projects it would have a major ramification uh, on people's lives and on the delivery of community life um, and also um, that there would be a series of jobs that, that you know right across and the amount of jobs that people are employed via um, EU funding is massive so mm -hmm. we've, we've heard the commitments from various sources that the money will be replaced and that it won't, the tap won't be turned off but I think it's critical for ourselves and the executive office and our ministers uh, to absolutely be keeping that pressure on for clarity so that people can know exactly what's going to happen going forward.
Can I thank both of you for your attendance here today? Um, it's a very interesting piece of work, and as I say, you know, you're doing a great work on the ground, and we really support and endorse all that you're doing. Uh, and thank you for making yourselves available today to present us. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you. And members, I'll ask people just to take their ease for a few minutes while we prepare the room for the next session. So. Just before members take their ease, maybe. Um, there was a departmental oral evidence session on EU funding has been scheduled with officials from the Executive Office and the Department of Finance on the 9th of December. Now, there is a cross-cutting nature of the Peace Plus programme, and due to that, the Committee of Finance has agreed to coordinate the scrutiny of the programme across Assembly committees. Uh, therefore, members, I'm suggesting that we forward any comments on the Peace Plus programme that we've received from today to the from the, the following the one on the 9th of December, but we'll uh, pass those on to the Finance Committee. Um, so members in agreement with that? Agreed. Yep. Okay. And we'll take a few minutes of a break just while we prepare the room. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly. So, okay, uh, members, glad that we're back again. We're going to move on to item five, which is the Victims Payment Scheme and Oral Evidence Session from Departmental Officials. On pages 63 to 82 of the meeting pack are the relevant papers, and also on page 3 of the table pack is the departmental briefing. Um, so we will welcome our guests. There we go. You're very welcome. Yeah. We have two seats available there. So we're welcoming, as usual, for the Victims Payment Scheme, uh, Mark Brown, uh, Director of Strategic Policy, Quality and Good Relations, and Gareth Johnson, the Director of Victims and Survivors Division in the Executive Office. As ever, um, evidence is being recorded by Hansard and will be published on the committee webpage. Um, and we'll just go for the usual format of if you want to give us a short presentation or update on where we are, and then we will uh, open out the floor for some questions. So. Certainly, Chair. Sure. We're well used to the format. Thank you very much. Yes, stage, I think yeah. we're, we're, we're well into the format by now. Can I first, firstly apologise for the fact that the paper wasn't provided uh, in advance within the time frame. Um, but I will take you through the content of the, <clears throat> the paper, which is really an update on, on our progress since the uh, last meeting. Um, so we have, we've had the formal designation of the Department of Justice. Uh, and uh, funding of 2.5 million advanced by the Executive Office, which has meant that uh, a substantial programme of work has been able to be taken forward to put in place the uh, Troubles Permanent Disablement Scheme. So that has already enabled uh, the establishment of a dedicated project team in the Executive Office to oversee the programme of work to deliver the scheme. Likewise, uh, the establishment of a dedicated project team in the Department of Justice to progress the uh, development of the delivery structures that they are responsible for in relation to the scheme. It's also allowed critical IT developments to start. So the IT discovery uh, phase, as it's described, has now been completed. Um, and it's anticipated that progress uh, 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 will, will now move into the design phase for the, the system. Um, draft application forms for the scheme and accompanying guidance notes have been developed. Uh, and uh, will be shared with the judge designated uh, by the Lord Chief Justice um, and also with representatives of the victims and survivors sector. Um, the Lord Chief Justice uh, um, has announced uh, Mr Justice Michael Linden as the interim president 
of the Victims Payments Board to assist the Department of Justice with the development of the scheme. Um, job descriptions for the Victims Payment Board members have been finalised and the uh, Northern Ireland Judicial Appointments Commission, NIJAC, um, how, are, will be commencing the selection process for the short-term board members. And there's good progress that has been made on identifying uh, accommodation for staff who will be delivering the new scheme. The funding advanced by the Executive uh, will also enable a number of other important operational steps to advance the implementation of the scheme. Uh, and that includes uh, work towards development of an online application uh, system and associated security accreditation, uh, the scoping and development work on the medical assessment uh, process, obviously the payment of salaries and the IT requirements for the, the various project teams, uh, at the Victims Payments Board and the supporting administrative body, provision of additional resources for the, the Victims and Survivors Service, VSS, and the VSS partner organisations uh, to help them to train, train staff to ensure that they can support applicants through the applications process. Uh, design and implementation of a staff training programme. Um, completion of independent reviews of the programme uh, to provide an assessment of confidence for delivery. These are the gateway uh, reviews and so forth that are carried out just to assess progress and whether or not the, the project's on target. Provision of the Government Actuary Department, or GAD, uh, advice on the projected lifetime costs of, of the scheme, uh, provision of legal advice and, on terms and conditions of contracts, and procurement advice and services from construction and procurement delivery, CPD, uh, and uh, it will allow also initial advertising around the opening of the scheme. So in terms of the, the, the timeline, Chair, if we maybe turn to that, uh, the Justice Minister has indicated to the Assembly that her aim is for the scheme to open to applications in early March. Uh, an interim president, as I mentioned, has, has been appointed, and it's anticipated that the interim board members will be appointed in January 2021, uh, with staff being put in place to support the board from February 2021. And subject to the establishment and agreement of the board, then the application forms, the guidance notes, and so forth will be finalised, and the advice and support arrangements uh, will be introduced for applicants by the end of January 2021. There's also, of course, uh, important uh, internal processes required. So the required business cases are progressing, uh, and all approvals are expected to be in place, and funding for 2021-22 secured by the end of February. An oversight group is in place, which I chair, um, and that monitors all aspects of implementation and timelines, including the development of the relevant business cases. Uh, there's work ongoing in relation to the lifetime cost of the scheme, and we've engaged the Government Actuary Department to assist in these calculations, and they aim to have um, produced revised estimated lifetime costs by mid to late December. An interim business case for the preparatory work that we've talked about before, the £2.5 million, pounds, has been drafted and is before uh, the Department's Major Business Case Committee. A strategic outline case uh, is at an advanced draft stage. And an outline business case, an overall outline business case with more detailed estimates will be required further down the track. The number of applications to the scheme, as we've discussed at the committee before, uh, and the related cost is unknown. And so costs are based on a range of assumptions uh, relating to how many people will apply, what the average award might be, and how many people may avail of the lump sum option. And the estimates and costs will be subject to refinement as the scheme progresses. There are procurement processes that need to be followed in respect of the IT and the medical assessment service provider. 
And in, in relation to IT, it's anticipated that what's described as a, a minimum viable product, uh, in other words, the basic system needed to allow us to open the scheme, uh, will be in place for the scheme opening to applications in early March. And discussions are ongoing in relation to procurement of the, uh, uh, in relation to identification of the medical assessment service provider. Once the scheme is open, um, it'll take some time to process applications. So DOJ have advised that it's not possible to be specific, therefore, about when exactly payments to victims and survivors might commence, as that will ultimately be a matter for the Victims Payments Board when it's established. It will also depend on how quickly the necessary evidence can be gathered and the medical assessments uh, carried out, if they're required, uh, to allow the applications to be uh, assessed. In terms of future funding, uh, which of course has been a, a, an ongoing issue, both the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister are entirely committed to delivering the scheme, and TEO acknowledges that the scheme needs to be funded in order to operate properly. In accordance with the normal government budgeting arrangements, TEO will make a request for the necessary funding to allow it to make the necessary grants of funding to DOJ for the scheme in accordance with paragraph 9 of Schedule 1 of the regulations. Uh, with, with the Department of Finance, and we will make those bids to the Department of Finance as the funding falls due, so in other words, as is required. In other words, a request will be made before each budget period for the resources that are anticipated to be required during that period, and that's in line with normal uh, budgeting processes. Alongside this, the First Minister and Deputy First Minister, along with the Finance Minister and the Justice Minister, will continue to seek additional funds for the block grant from the Secretary of State, and through him, the Treasury, to address the financial pressures created by the scheme. The four ministers met on the 22nd of September to discuss the approach to substantive funding and have agreed to seek uh, a meeting with the Secretary of State. Now, those discussions and requests will not prevent TEO in the meantime from making the necessary requests for funding from the Department of Finance as, as they fall due. However, despite the meeting being requested uh, on the 22nd of September, as of the 12th of November, the actual arrangements have not yet been uh, agreed. Correspondence has recently been received from uh, the Secretary of State indicating that he's willing to meet. Uh, in that correspondence, uh, the Secretary of State reiterated the position that victims' payments is a devolved matter, and devolved matters are funded by the block grant, and that the devolved funding mechanism means that the executive is funded through the block grant, together with its own revenue-raising capabilities, in order to fund its statutory responsibilities, including the victims' payment scheme. And so he states it's therefore for the executive to manage its available resources to deliver its spending priorities. DOF has already commissioned an exercise <clears throat> to gather information from departments on their provisional budget requirements over the next three years, from 2021 to 2024. And consistent with our indication that we would seek the necessary funding as it follows due, TEO has included uh, the following indication of its requirements for the Victims' Payment Scheme in its formal response. And that's been agreed by the First Minister and Deputy First Minister and submitted to the Department of Finance. So for the first year, 2021-22, uh, a bit of £28.7 million has been put forward. For the second year, 2022-23, £64.3 uh, The third year, 2023-24, million. So that makes a total of £165 million over those, uh, over those three years. On the initial scoping of the cost for 2021, <clears throat> the expectation by DOJ and TEO uh, was that £2.5 million should be sufficient to cover the costs incurred by both departments in undertaking the necessary work to establish the scheme's administrative arrangements. As the project has developed and costs have been refined, um, it's now expected that some additional funding may be required. 
So TEO and DOJ officials are currently looking at the, the detailed costings and we will include any additional funding needs that might be identified within 2021 as part of our return uh, on the departmental January monitoring round. But sure, that's uh, an update on where we are, timeline, funding and so forth. Happy to take uh, any questions. Mark, thanks very much for the, the presentation and the detail there. And I suppose if, if we compare all of that to maybe where we were even six months ago, there's been a considerable amount of movement and that has to be very welcome because we've always consistently highlighted from this committee how those within the victims community are um, some of... Uh, those that, that require most of our attention and it feels like over the last number of years they've re received the least of our attention and there is an urgency about delivering this scheme and, and they will want to see um, that scheme delivered. The unfortunate side to this is that there is obviously some form of fiscal management that needs to be considered as part of this and I, I think that we are still looking um, at a scenario where that is deeply worrying. Um, and I can't quite determine in my own mind whether the Secretary of State is just disinterested or whether he lacks an understanding or whether it's a negotiating tack to simply say, no, this is just simply something to do with yourselves. And without overplaying or underplaying the specifics, the British government was a player in, in the troubles process that there was here that resulted in the victims' community, and therefore to completely absent themselves of any responsibility for having to pick up the tab at the other end, I think is quite naive, and I think it's something that they will really have to uh, consider, and I hope that they will enter into any meetings or negotiations with the executive in an open and positive way, and that it isn't simply to say, no, this is nothing to do with us. And likewise, there are a number of people from the victim sector that aren't from Northern Ireland, they're not from here, they weren't injured here, um, and there obviously is a consideration that needs to be given to them as well and how they are featured into any pension system that goes forward. Um, so it is still a very perilous scenario, uh, given that, um, and, and I offer that more as a comment than a question because I appreciate that you're not going to have an answer to that until there is a conclusion of the, um, that programme. Um, maybe can I just ask, would you have any sense at this stage that if the programme rolls out in March, what sort of numbers of people might be able to avail of the scheme and how quick it will take that scheme to build a bit of steam to start delivering for a significant number of people? Is there, is there any thoughts about how, how many will get included in that process as we move forward? Well, we've had some discussion before, Chair, about, about the actual... Um there's two, there's two questions really in that, which is what, what are the total numbers that will come forward and then how, how quickly can they be processed? Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the, the total numbers, we're still working on that. We had the initial uh, NIO estimate of 2,000, um, which was the basis of, of, of the earlier costings. Now, we now believe that to be much, much too low. Um, and uh, uh, on the basis of work we're doing with, with Queen's University um, on psychological uh, uh, injuries, uh, and also consideration of how many uh, service personnel, both police and army, both here and in GB, who may be eligible for this scheme. Uh, we find the, the, the numbers could be significantly higher than 2,000. Um, but in, in, in assessing 
what our budgetary requirements might be over the next three years, what we've looked at is what is the likely throughput, assuming that there's a significant number that come forward, regardless of the other number, assuming a significant number come forward, what's the likely throughput? And we've, we've looked at that in light of our experience with the historical institutional abuse tribunal, which is a very similar sort of process in terms of a judge-led board and so forth. Uh, and on the basis of three panels sitting for four days a week, which is what happens in, the, in, in HIA, um, we have reckoned on a throughput uh, in the first year perhaps of somewhere in the region of 500 cases, the second year 1,200 cases, and the third year 1,200 cases. So approaching 3,000 over the first three, three years. And that's been the basis on which we have calculated the sums that we've asked for from the Department of Finance. Now clearly, uh, ultimately, how many cases are dealt with will be a matter for the, for, for the actual payments board to decide itself. Um, it will be also be dictated by the extent to which all the evidence they need can be quickly gathered, the, how, how quickly people actually apply, uh, and, and, and how complicated the assessments actually are. But we've looked to the only re reasonable comparator we have, which is the HIA, and based our assumptions around that. And you would hope that even in what you've just said there would enlighten the the... British government to what they need to do here insofar as they're, they're basing their modelling on 2,000 cases and, and you reckon in the first three years that you'll get 3,000 through and, and this will be a process that will probably go on for many years beyond that so I mean it's fairly obvious to most that the numbers that are going to be involved in the scheme is going to well outweigh the NIO's figures and, and they're even saying no to any financial support at 2,000, never mind that it's going to be more. So I hope that that will allow uh, a sharpening of thoughts uh, uh, for people there to realise that the, the block grant that we have here, you know, it's, it's virtually committed um, in, in, in keeping the lights on uh, and not much more to be on it. But to start heaping this sort of pressure on um, is just unfair. I think it's important just to make the point, Chair, uh, that the scheme's uh, uh, application should be made within the first five years, okay. uh, and then there's some time after that. Obviously, it'll take a little bit longer to actually, actually consider them all. Mm -hmm. uh, a number of them will, will seek lump sums, so it'll really be a single payment. But there will be others who will seek the ongoing payment, and that will go on. That element will go on for a great many years, in the same way as, as, as a pension scheme might go on in, in, in different circumstances. Okay, thank you. I'm going to pass the Doug. Uh, thanks, uh, Chair. Um, thanks um, f for the brief. I mean, it's always good to get the, the, what's, what's happening in change. If I can just sort of carry on with the, the, the commentary about this. I mean, I'm absolutely clear that I believe the UK government should help with the financial support for this scheme. Um, but I don't think the UK government has just turned their backs on the victim scheme. I mean, I've, I've got to remind people, the only reason the UK government brought this in is because we failed to. It's because we are the ones who failed in the first place, and the British government had to step up to bring this in. So I don't think they washed their hands of it. I think it was a disgrace that we couldn't sort it out, that they had to do it for us. Um, but they do need to add financial support to that. And when we do say that the, Irish, uh, the British government has got responsibility, so what happened here? Uh, as the chair would say, they were a player in this conflict. Well, so was the Irish government a player in this conflict. And I don't see them putting their hands in their pockets too much or making any movement towards supporting this whatsoever. Um, so, so there is a commentary to be had about this whole thing. And I do believe the UK government does have to put their hand in their pocket and put money in to support this, but so do other people. Um, uh, and and the, the sooner we sort of get on with this, the, the, the better. Could I just raise an issue about the numbers, please? Because uh, 
I were I was I was part of this process for quite some while back, as were as were others, uh, and it, it was working through the VSS, and they started off with about 150 people who were likely to get this payment, and that went up to about 750 people, and now they were talking about 2,000, and now we're talking about 3,000 in these numbers. Uh, but is there not a case about the management of expectation? Because even now we're sitting here calling this a victims payment scheme, and it's not a victims payment scheme; it's a troubles permanent disability payment scheme. So what you've got out there now is you've got people out there who are victims. Rightly, they're victims who think they're entitled to this because they are victims. That's not what it's designed for. It is designed for permanent disabilities. And if we can stop and change our language, and, and I'm looking at all the paperwork which comes from yourselves um, and elsewhere, and it's using victims' payment scheme, we need to change our language and it needs to be troubles permanent disability payment scheme. And that makes people understand that this is for people from the Troubles with permanent disabilities. It, it, and, and that might be a reason why our numbers are sort of increasing. Is that, is that a fair point? Well, I think in the first thing, you're absolutely right uh, that we need to get the, the, the terminology correct. Uh, it needs to do what it says in the tin, uh, and that's really important. So using the term, uh, the, 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 the permanent disabled scheme is really important. Remember, this started as a victim's pension. We've tried to get away oh, from I know, uh, yeah. A pension then became payment, and now uh, we, using the full, the, the, the full term, I think, is important to convey what the scheme is actually designed to do. And in terms of where the, the, the increase in the numbers has, has, has come from, I mean, initially the commitment was around the severely physically disabled. And then, and, and that's what the initial discussions were all about. Then this this uh, uh, extended into those who had, were permanently disabled from a psychological perspective, and it's it's in it's in trying to assess the psychological damage really here and the numbers that might come forward in that area where the real difficulty is. I think we're probably fairly clear about how many people have suffered severe physical disability. Most of them are already being supported by the VSS and the figures there are accurate. When you get to um, um, psychological disability in terms of those who are being supported by VSS, our estimate is, uh, based, as I say, on the work of, of, of a psychiatrist in, in, in Queens and other information and surveys about how many people have suffered uh, psychological or, 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 or mental uh, illness or disability uh, through, the, through the troubles, that the figures are much, much higher than we're initially envisaged. But the problem is it's difficult to know exactly how many there, there are and how many will then come forward and how many will meet the threshold. Uh, for that, so that is where the the increase has come in, and that's that's one aspect. Those who are here in the in the, in the civilian aspect, then when you look at the services aspect, and and uh, the numbers uh, who were service per personnel who were um, who, who who suffered a mental mental uh, uh, permanent dis dis disability as a consequence of their service here, we can get numbers um, for those that are resident here, but we can't distinguish from all of those who are receiving a pension over in GB, how many uh, are receiving that as a consequence of the troubles here. Now, I suppose you could speculate that the likelihood is that there could be fairly significant numbers, given that the campaign here, was a, or the operation here, was one of the biggest in, in the British Army history. But we still don't know how many numbers there are there. And the issue there is that while it's unlikely the individuals themselves would be receiving any payment from this uh, on, on their death, they could nominate, provided they've applied beforehand, they could nominate for a spouse or a carer to actually receive the 10 years' worth of payment. That's where a great amount of this unknown is coming in. We're trying to work that through. We've been in touch with um, the MOD on this, but um, it's been difficult to get any clarity around those figures, and they have the potential to significantly 
increase the numbers that we're talking about. But, but, but those, um, thanks for Mark, uh, that makes sense. But, and, I, and I'll just say something, you see that increase for, for psychological? That's where the jump went from on the VSS when I was with them from 750 to 2000 was because we suddenly went, oh, psychological. Well, that's where the jump initially came from. I'm not saying we're, we're expanding something here. I absolutely get the problem that we're, we're, we're talking about. But are we, are we saying then, because um, those people who are service personnel um, will be directed to the MOD's um, uh, scheme, and that's where they should go to for, for, for their compensation, not, not to this scheme. The, the, you know, if it's a permanent disability due to their service within the military here in Northern Ireland, then it's the MOD he will be, who will be paying them. Um, not, not this scheme. Well, there's, there's two things. First of all, I think the, the jump in the psychologically uh, disabled um, w wasn't just by including those that were known to VSS, because they wouldn't actually know, know everyone in Northern Ireland. Oh, no, it's no. only those that happen to be in contact. Yeah, yeah. So the, 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 there's an increase there when you start doing population estimates of how many would be impacted there, so that, that increases the numbers. And then the issue about, about the, the, the MOD and those who, who, who have been service personnel is that while they go, yes, to their own uh, um, scheme, they are eligible for this scheme. Now, any payments they get in relation to the MOD scheme are discounted, so it probably isn't beneficial for them in the main. But on their, on their death, if they have applied and deemed to be eligible, there would be 10 years worth of provision available for their spouses and for their carers, and that's where this could become very attractive, and that's where the additional cost could, could come in, and that's what we've been looking at uh, here. Yeah, I might Mark, just add something on uh, the, the name of the scheme and, and making sure that the nature of the scheme is understood, because that's something that uh, the, the sector is very concerned about as well, and, and it's uh, uh, been the topic of a, a number of our meetings. Um, uh, unfortunately, the, the regulations that we've inherited um, uh, talk in, in two different ways about this. They, they say the uh, troubles permanent disablement payment scheme, uh, but they also talk about a victim's payment board. Um, what uh, DOJ colleagues have been doing is to try and make sure that the, in the branding the Troubles Permanent Disablement Scheme comes out very clearly, because the last thing we want to do is for people to feel that this is something they might benefit from and then be disappointed. That's just going to be re-traumatising for them. I, I, absolutely, I, I, and that's the problem, because I'm getting it in my constituency office. I'm getting people coming in who were victims, and they were victims, without a shadow of a doubt. But, 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 and it's really hard to say to them, but, but you're not permanently um, it's not a permanent disability. You're not. You're not entitled. It's really, it's really, really quite difficult. But that's something that, that I have to manage. And, the beauty we... about the beauty about being in this committee and in the justice committee is that I know that the DOJ are saying, let's make sure we use the right terminology, and that's one of the reasons why, why I read it. But, but I mean, your answers are, are, are perfectly right and, and acceptable. I have no issue at all with that. What was said as well, though, and I know you haven't said this, Mark. I'm sorry, Chair. I'll make this my last one. What you did, what was said, Mark, and I know you haven't said it, but um, DOJ um, staff said that the first payment is likely to be at the end of the financial year 21-22. So we're talking payment in March, April, first payment in March, April of 22. That seems an awful long way away. Well, I. Um I, th I think that what was said was maybe that the second half of the financial year, the, the 21-22 um, financial year, um, 
but uh, it, it, it really depends on how quickly the, the processes can be worked through. I mean, th there is a, a multi-stage process here. Um, so, first of all, people gather together their evidence, get in their application. Um, then a decision needs to be made about eligibility. Uh, was it a troubles-related incident? Was the person present in the immediate aftermath? Um, and the, the board will need to go and check some records, um, maybe police records, maybe health service records, to uh, be able to triangulate that and, and establish it. Um, then if you get through that, there's the question of what is the degree of disability. So there's an assessment that, that needs to be, be done there. So the regulations do give us quite a, a, an elongated process. Now, I know that DOJ colleagues uh, are committed to uh, working things through as quickly as they can. Um, it may be that there are cases uh, which uh, where people have the information all there uh, and uh, and conveniently to, to hand um, and in fact there is provision um, yeah the, the, there is provision for prioritization within the, the regulations so uh, I think they will be doing uh, everything they can to, to get cases through but there is just a time factor here that that can't be avoided yeah exactly and I'm not trying to put a thumb on somebody and say give us a time it's got to be to this time I get that but again it's an expectation as well you know somebody says with you know the, the the fourth quarter of the of the financial year you know it's it's, it's worth you know, understanding what we're talking about here, because the HIA didn't take that long to get it out. They got it out within four months. They had their first payments going out within four months of it being set up. Um, you know, but we're talking, we're talking twice, maybe three times that. So, but, but you know, like I said, I'm not, I'm not trying to put my thumb on a yeah. date. I'm just trying to get an understanding of it. Well, I think as Gareth said, there, there, there may be some cases that may be able to come forward more quickly, and I suspect yeah, course, yeah. what what our, our, our colleagues are trying to do is, to, is again to manage expectations. That, but the, you know, the, the main flow is maybe going to take some time to get into place. There may be some early ones that can come through, and the HIA process, while it's similar, is not exactly the same as this one. There are some additional complications, I think, in this scheme, which could lead to uh, slightly longer time frames and consideration. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, I'm uh, going to go to Pat now to come in next. Yes, thank you, Chair, uh, and thanks, Mark and Gareth, for coming in again. Um, first of all, uh, you know, I think we're all in agreement that the the sooner uh, those who have been disabled as a result of the conflict receive this payment, then the better. Uh, and all of us want to see that happening as quickly as possible. However, we all, we all know there are some anomalies in this scheme, and uh, I'll, I'll focus on the anomalies around the funding. Uh, and I, I don't expect you, Mark, to have have the answers to this, but I want to mention it anyway. And usually, uh, in circumstances like this, whoever makes the policy also provides the funding. And of course, it was it was the British government who developed the policy. Uh, and now they're saying they're not going to provide the funding, that it's going to have to come out of the black grant. The other issue is is that uh, I know of no other circumstance where a devolved administration would have to pay for a scheme that, that would uh, uh, cover all the jurisdictions as well as uh, Europe, anyone who had been injured in Europe. So, I mean... There, there, there are clear anomalies uh, in this, and I think all of us are, are in agreement that uh, the British government need to, to stump up as far as this scheme is concerned. So, 
uh, I'm just wondering, first of all, I I, uh, I listened to what you said about the the uh, British Secretary of State's uh, letter, effectively saying it was up to the executive to find the funding. Uh, and I know uh, he hasn't been terribly forthcoming when it comes to sitting down to have a discussion about providing any funding. But I'm, I'm wondering, has any discussions taken place at official level that you're aware of, Mark, between yourselves and the NIO? Well, we would be in contact, Pat, with, with the NIO in some aspects, sometimes just trying to clarify the policy intent, for example, or, or again, in contact with them about where we can go to get information, for example, about the, the number of service personnel and so forth. But the, the issues that you're describing really are entirely in the political sphere. Uh, and are ones for ministers to take forward. And the First and Deputy First Minister are, are clear that they believe that the British government should be making a contribution to this scheme. Um, and the, they, they have indicated, along with the, the Justice Minister that, and, and the Finance Minister, that they want to pursue that, and they're seeking to pursue that. But as I say, these issues are very much in the political sphere and are not ones that officials would be able to um, sort out. Uh, and I understand that. I, I suppose... Uh, my fear is around the sustainability of this scheme because I think you've you've said before it could go on for potentially uh, thirty years, and um, you know the, the, there was a discussion there earlier. Doug mentioned it about uh, service, uh, our British service personnel um, qualifying for this in terms of nominating a, sp- a spouse for ten years payment after their death. And we've had some informal discussion around this within the within the committee, and uh, I mean, it's it's difficult to quantify uh, how uh, uh, what size of a, a claim would result out of British Army personnel um, making that particular application, because presumably. Many of the people who would be making an application already in receipt of uh, a, a disabled pension from the Ministry of Defence, uh, but it wouldn't be a lot of trouble to make an application then, because all the evidence would be already there with the uh, with the Ministry of Defence. And these things have a tendency to snowball, as I mean I have mentioned before in relation to the PSNI hearing loss claim. Once it uh, appears that you know, a small number of people are getting claims for what is effectively, a, you know, a subjective injury. And, and, and that would be the case in regard to psychological injuries. So you could have a, a considerable avalanche of claims uh, for people, particularly, as I say, with psychological injuries. So, I mean, that's another issue that, that, that makes the issue of who's going to pick up the tab for this. And, I mean, I suppose a lot of people might say that, well, the, the uh, executive should have no difficulty providing, you know, the first couple of years uh, of funding for this. But, I mean, it's, it's a bit like going for a mortgage and you bring three months' pay slips with you. But, I mean, a decision is taken by the mortgage company of whether they think you're able to sustain the payments over a much longer period of time into the future, you know, whether it's 20, 25 years or whatever. And it, it, it seems to me there would be difficulty for the executive 
in sustaining the funding for this over a protracted period, particularly if there was, as I say, an avalanche of claim claims from uh, British Army personnel. What would your view on that be? Well, at the moment, Pat, we're, we're working to get the best um, estimate we can. I'm not actually sure we're going to be able to get a very, a very uh, accurate estimate uh, uh, around, the, around this uh, area. It's very, very difficult because there's a number of things that, that impact. The first thing is, while we know the number of uh, British Army personnel in receipt of, of uh, uh, pension in GB, and it's around 100,000, um, we don't know how many of those were as a consequence of the Troubles. Uh, the point you made about the evidence being there, that if you are eligible for the, uh, the, that, that pension, you may be eligible for this scheme. It depends on the evidence levels and what criteria they are. They wouldn't be exactly the same in, in both. Then there's the issue about um, well, how, um, uh, uh, how attractive uh, is this permanent disablement scheme compared to whatever benefits or whatever ongoing uh, payments there would be to the widow of... A, 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 a member of, of the um, uh, of service personnel. Uh, then there's the issue about even if it's attractive, how many would come forward? Because we know not everybody in every case is going to 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 come forward. So there's a whole series in there of, of very very difficult uh, assumptions to make. And the difficulty is when you're making an assumption and dividing it into a large number, uh, a small variation leads you to uh, a, a very large figure. Uh, so I think this area is going to be particularly difficult and uh, for us to come up with any sort of meaningful estimate. We've got as far as we can, I think, almost with the MOD. We've been talking to them. Their database is limited uh, as to what it can tell us. Um, so this is going to be an area of very significant uncertainty. Okay. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you, Mark. Okay, Trevor. Thanks, Chair. Uh, thanks. thanks, Chair. Thank you, Martin. Garth. Um, at least you're making good progress on the organisational side of this, that's for sure, and that's good to see. Uh, but the elephant in the room, obviously, is, is funding, and we all keep coming back to this. The, the, the three figures you've given us for the 21, 22, and so on, um, I know that's at somebody's best guess based on various criteria. Now, would it be fair to say that those figures are more related to lump sum payments than pension payments, or is that not the case? Well, I mean, Gareth can give the detail on that one, but where, where we come up with those figures was on the, on the, on the basis that, that we, we uh, consider that the, le the likely number of people eligible are going to sig be significantly more than 2,000. Oh, yeah. okay? uh, and you start looking at, well, what's the sort of physical capacity of the, the panel to actually process payments? Mm -hmm. yeah. And again, looking to the HIA as an example, now, of course, you can flex that up or down by bringing in more panels. That creates its own problems. You have to bring in more admin support, and, and you yeah. have to try and process all the evidence. But the figures that we've put in place are what we think is a reasonable sort of uh, throughput for the first three years, and that's what we've based that on. Now, we, we do expect that, that a significant number of people are likely to go for the lump sum uh, up front. Gareth, do you want to say a little bit more about some of the considerations around that? Uh, yes, yes. Um, I mean, the... the Lump sum uh, is available to people who are uh, 60 or over, or who, who turn 60 or over. Um, now, the question is how many people who fall into that category would want to take the lump sum rather than the annual payments. Um, 
we have been working on the basis that it will be an attractive option for, for people. Um, and we're looking at maybe between uh, two-thirds and, and four-fifths of people who would who would take that option. Um, but just to, to give, um, by way of illustration, uh, if we took, say, year three there, the, the 72 million figure that's in the papers that you have, um, now these figures are hedged around with all kinds of cautions, but um, about 40 million of that would be backdating uh, because people get their claims backdated to the Stormont House Agreement 2014. Um, about uh, 18 million, uh, the lump sums, and then uh, 7 million or so, the, uh, the uh, annual payments with uh, the implementation costs on, on top of that. So the, the backdating and the, the lump sums, at least in the early stage, are where we are envisaging the, the bulk of the money is going to go. I would, I would think that uh, the over 60s that you talk about, um, the, the, the question of whether they would take a lump sum or a pension really depends on their age. Uh, if they're 70 plus, would probably take a lump sum. Um, but the, I'm, I'm wondering also, Mark, you mentioned the, the five-year window for applications. Um, I, I have no experience with this. That, that seems like an awful long time for something that has been in, in, on, you know, in, in the making for, for so long that most people, I would have thought most people, let's say a lot of people who might be eligible for these payments would already know about it and would be waiting to go. And I think you'll get a, a you're going to find out next March just what the likely uh, uptake is going to be, I think. Um, do, do we need to spread the application process over that length of time? I think you even said there might be exceptions to that that would go into the future beyond five years. Well, no, what I was saying was it might take longer to actually make a decision on some of the applications. Right. In those five years, there'll be a tail of a period before yeah. as you're still working through all the applications you get in the five years. The five years were set down in the regulations. Right. Okay. So, so that, that, that was part of the, uh, um, the, the framework that, that, that we have to work within. I think uh, for some people will be very aware of, of the scheme um, and very aware of whether they're eligible or not. I think there will be others who will be less aware. Uh, and this provides an opportunity uh, to ensure that there's, there's uh, uh, an opportunity for people to be made aware of the scheme, uh, for publicity about it, and so yeah. that if they feel that they're entitled, they are able to apply and they're encouraged to apply. There's also the factor that uh, if someone has had a traumatic experience, um, the, the making the decision to apply and the taking the steps to apply, the getting information and so on, may be things that you have to work yourself up to. So uh, I think that, that, that was part of the, the consideration. But the, uh, the five-year uh, application period was the, the same as for the historical institutional abuse scheme. Okay. Do you, do you think that the, the, the third year here is a, a very high figure? Yeah. What, what, what would your best guess be after that? Because this thing is going to run for, as Pat said, I think for 30 years, possibly. Um, it must taper off. Well, that, that's, that's part of the, the, the calculations. How, how many applications will come forward? Um, what will the level of assessment be um, based on the, on the degree of dis disablement? How many will take the lump sum up front? That all plays into the figures that we have. And then once we get beyond uh, the, the sort of five, six, seven year period, you would expect that it's those who are taking the ongoing 
pension uh, or, or ongoing payment, sorry, over the over the number of years that we're talking about, and that figure will gradually, uh, uh, you know, decline o over the years. What do you think? Sorry about that, Yeah, I know it's to send a wee bit into a conversation down in that corner of the room. Can we try and keep it to a question and answer? And, okay, and well, just, just a one then. And is it fair to say that the vast majority of the applications will come in inside the five years? That there shouldn't be people left out after that point in time? And then you could, you could accurately quantify the extent of funding required. On the basis of these figures, there, there's, there's no way that the Northern Ireland Exchequer can can deal with this. The British government obviously has to come in. So I'm interested in Mr Lewis's um, strident response. There's no way that they will come in. Uh, and he's, he says he'll meet about it, but he then goes on to say we're not going to budge. This is, this is negotiation, all right. Uh, well, well uh, applications have to be submitted within the five years. Obviously, we, uh, uh, as we move through the process, we'll get a better idea. Uh, of of the extent to which there's a, there's a significant number of applications coming in, and whether or not the estimates that we had uh, are, are accurate or not, and we will revise as 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 is good practice, we will revise our estimates and our business cases uh, uh, in light of that. What I'm thinking is that as time goes on, let's say after the ten-year point and beyond that, that the Northern Ireland budget could probably handle it. I would have thought, but these three years, possibly a couple of years beyond those three years well the 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 provisions for backdating and the provisions for lump sums mean that a lot of the costs are front end loaded well, thank you very much thanks chair and apologies some of the references that the acoustics are terrible in this room when you talk down that way it's actually i'm struggling to hear you up at this end of the room apologies chair and i know the questions will be banging in there so as far as Trevor want to, to hear them. Look, I've no other indications for anybody to ask a question unless, um, George, are you looking to ask a question there or are you okay? I'm fine. You're fine. Okay, yeah. no problem. Um, is there another point you wanted? It's just, a, it's just something that I'm reading here, just on the discussion that was important, Mark, thanks, Chair. Um, uh, and it says here quite clearly that um, widows, widowers and sur surviving civil partners of all members of the armed forces pension scheme will now retain their pensions for life. So if they're retaining their pensions for life, they wouldn't be applying for a pension 10 years on because they've retained it for life. Uh, the, uh, the difference comes with the uh, widows and uh, spouses and, and partners um, where uh, with war pensions, and we're probably talking about the old war pension scheme mostly for uh, people who would, who would qualify for this, um, the, it was only... Uh, in situations where someone had been at least 80% disabled, where the uh, survivor benefits kicked in. So I, I think uh, there is a difference between the Armed Forces Compensation Scheme, the new scheme, and the, the former uh, war pension scheme in, in, uh, in that regard. It, uh, I'll, I'll, I, don't, I don't want to take time, but I'm just reading it here. It's all on. It's the 75 pension scheme. It's the War Widows Pension Scheme. It's the 2015 pension scheme. Uh, you know, the, you know, there's a whole regular, you know, but all of them is on on death. Their widows, their widowers, their spouses, their partners get the pension for life, so they wouldn't be applying for the 10 years. 
Anyway, we, we, we're in touch with the uh, chief medical officer in the MOD, who's responsible for the, the war pension scheme. So sure. uh, we're, we're having an opportunity to clarify these oh, points. Oh, thank, thank um, something else, maybe I just should say it, 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 it uh, sprung to mind uh, with your, your point earlier. Um, yes, of course, there will be uh, many victims who don't qualify for, for this scheme. It's uh, designed for a particular set of circumstances, but who would qualify for the other services uh, and support that's available yeah, through, through VSS. And one of the things we want to do is to make sure that uh, anybody who applies is aware that whatever the outcome, that service and support is, uh, is available to them. And that's a good point to make, actually. Thank you. Thank you for your indulgence, Chair. Okay, uh, Mark, thank you very much indeed. I think it's been mentioned by a number of members. There, there's a lot of movement that has taken place there. Uh, still a fair bit of movement that we'd like to see, but there's a fair bit of movement that's going on in that scheme, and that's something that we've been asking for. So to see that is actually quite good. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you very much. Thank you. Game to talk about money at some point, will it? Yes. Thank you. Very easy for a moment, um, just to let the speakers leave. And I know we have, if Sean is coming in, we'll just need one chair maybe set up for her there. And while that's happening, we should be able just to continue. Um, if we move to item six, is a research and information briefing paper on the North South Ministerial Council and the British Irish Council. Um, it's in page 84 of the meeting pack. We had asked uh, to commission this research um, and the outcome of meetings as part of the committee's scrutiny for cross-cutting Brexit issues. Our members can attempt to note the research briefing at this stage and include it in next week's paper for information at the, during, when we will be taking evidence from the Oireachtas Committee. Are members happy enough? Yeah. Okay. Item 7 is the Carnegie UK Trust Citizens Engagement with the Programme for Government. It was a written briefing. It's on page 100 of the meeting pack. Um, it, we, I had met with the Carnegie Trust a number of weeks ago um, and they had suggested that they may have some information which would be of use to us, so we sought that written briefing from them. Um, that written briefing is contained and the suggestion is that we would go for an oral briefing when information becomes available on the programme for government. Are members content to note? Mm -hmm. Okay, on page eight, or sorry, item eight is the forward work programme. It's on page 107 of the meeting pack. Are members content to note what we've got lined up for the next few weeks? Okay. Yep. Item nine is correspondence. There are six items of correspondence on pages 114 to 242 in the meeting pack, and one item of correspondence on page 10 in the table pack. Are members content to note, or is there any items that anybody would like to raise from that? Chair. Yes, Emma. Yeah, go on ahead. Yeah, it's just the letter from the women's sector groups um, around the request for an extension on the consultation that the Bill of Rights Committee yes. uh, is, is doing. So it was just to note that obviously both myself and Christopher sit on that ad hoc committee. I'm not sure if Christopher has left, but that the committee agreed that extension. So um, I've already engaged with the, the women's sector lobbyists, but it was just, just for a point of information. Oh, that's that's. But thank you for that, Emma. Because actually, I noted that the request that they were looking referred to an extension for a meeting that took place last week. So, um, but that's good to hear that they got that extension that they were looking for. Um, item ten is chairman's business. Just two items. Number one, um, last week we um, our last two weeks we had met with the uh, councils from the various councils across Northern Ireland, and um, many of them had indicated that they had issues with the. And European funding 
Um, I had raised with the Finance Minister during um, the Ministerial Statement yesterday uh, about the councils and the fact that they had some concerns and just had asked maybe if he might take an opportunity to meet with them. Now, he did say that he would do that, but I thought maybe if we could just write from this committee, given that we met with the councils over the last two weeks, just to formalise that request uh, and just to put a bit of a tracker on it to make sure that it happens. And I think that this is important because having met the councils and them taking the time and the effort to prepare the briefings and to come and meet us, it might be nice to be able to show them that as a result of that, that there is some tangible outcomes at the other end of it. So, as I said, non-controversial, the Minister said yes, he would be happy to do it and maybe to do it through through the uh, medium of, of Solus or Nilga, but maybe just if we write the request that so that we've got a track on it, would members be happy enough? Yeah. Okay. Um, the other item is that I had met last week with the Northern Ireland Youth Forum, and that all parties are attending tomorrow night as political champions. Representatives for, by most parties, are attending uh, tomorrow night as political champions for um, young people. Uh, they have conducted a major piece of research of COVID-19 young people's views. Um, there was about 2,500 uh, young people that responded to that. And as the items contained in it, and I got a briefing on it last week, include infrastructure, education, health, right across the whole of the executive. Um, I now know that we did receive today uh, in our email, we, um, myself and the clerk have received that report. If members are happy, we'll table that report for next week. And then I think it might be good if we actually got those young people to do a presentation to us, yeah. to actually hear their views, yeah. hear the issues that young people are saying. And then if we could maybe uh, pass that on to the First and Deputy First Minister and the Executive Office for some follow-up. So would members be happy enough with that? Yes. Okay, so we'll get that tabled as a sort of almost written briefing for next week. And then we can make a, a get a, a presentation on the back of that. Is there any other business that members have? Okay, the date, time and place of the meeting is next Wednesday at 2 o'clock here. And members, we are now going to move into closed session for the remainder of the meeting. No uh, just We've no witnesses by Starleaf, so we don't need to worry about that. Uh, so what we will do is we will just, um, we're going to end the meeting at this stage and thank members for their attendance today. We'll get in. We need comms to put the members in, star and in spotlight. Oh, right, yes. And maybe just to ask communications there, if they're listening, that we have the members all in spotlight, okay, so that they're able to participate. Thank you. Thirty. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30.